You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Alfred Nobel, the man who created the world's most famous award, did something very interesting and something very destructive. Alfred Nobel invented dynamite. And if we look at the history of the Nobel Prize, we might gain a little insight into the surprising recent event that President Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize. And in doing so, becomes the fourth U.S. president to win. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, for his considerable efforts during the Versailles Treaty. Theodore Roosevelt, for his efforts during the Russo-Japanese War and a less-known conflict between Britain and Germany, long before World War I. As an ex-president, Jimmy Carter won for his successful handling of Begin and Sadat, Israel and Egypt, in the Camp David Peace Accords. But none of those examples provide a good foundation or understanding why President Obama would win the award at this time. There's no clear action or considerable foreign policy effort yet that we see uh, that would earn him the award, at least using these examples. In giving him the prize, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee lauded the change in the global mood wrought by Obama's calls for peace and cooperation and praised his pledges to reduce the world's stock of nuclear arms, ease U.S. conflict with Muslim nations, and strengthen its role in combating climate change. I had the same reaction that probably most people had, be they Obama supporters or detractors, when they heard the news. Who won? Why? And of course, there is some criticism in some quarters. It's too early, too much for too little. But a couple of observations about it. The Nobel Peace Prize involves a vote of five members of the Norwegian parliament. Consider if those five Norwegians are acting in the historical interest of the prize, looking at how the prize has operated and its historical roots. Alfred Nobel born in 1833, died in 1896, was a Swedish chemist and engineer, and he invented dynamite. It was a controllable combustible that made blasting rock and construction of canals and tunnels a relatively safe process. But Nobel was a real thinker. He also invented synthetic rubber, artificial silk, synthetic leather, he was always thinking. He had more than uh, 350 patents. He was a lover of literature, poetry, and books, philosophy. Dynamite became used for more than just engineering, however. It was used for war. And uh, as Nobel saw this happening, he decided that in his will, he would counter war and perhaps make right for the invention he had created 
by developing a prize that would award people for six human achievements. Peace, literature, physics, chemistry, medicine, and economic science. Quote, to those who during the preceding year shall have conferred the greatest benefit on mankind. When he died, Nobel left $9 million for the purpose. His family objected. They contested his will, but uh, his final wishes were put through. The first ward was distributed in 1901, five years after his death. Now, I think an important thing to understand about the Nobel Prize is they are not the Oscars of the political scene. The award is given with Nobel's intent to affect the world. It is an award of the living. One of the rules of the Nobel Prize is they are not allowed to give it to anyone upon their death. cannot be awarded posthumously. person must be living. And it's been criticized because there's probably been some folks who were deserving, but the fact that they died before they could be nominated. This rule gives you an insight into what kind of effect the Nobel Prize is looking to have. You award a prize to a person who's dead, and the person cannot do anything with it. Maybe their memory lives on, maybe it enhances the memory, but that's not the intention of the prize, just to give an award. Let's look at Nobel's will again. He says, those during the preceding year who shall have conferred the greatest benefit to mankind. Now, forget that we are politically amped up Americans with our partisan squabbles for a second. From the point of view of the rest of the world, looking at from this point in 2008, October 2008 to today... What was the one event that seemed to indicate a sea change in relations between the world? Even many Republicans uh, suggested that the one good thing Obama could do is to help to repair relations between Islamic nations and the United States. Still, there are critics, mostly because it doesn't fit in with the other examples. What has Obama achieved yet? He's had some starts. He had the speech in Cairo, but there's also been some setbacks. There's no constructive dialogue, at least that we know about right now. So it's an award given for an approach. Now, here's what the judge of the Norwegian Nobel Committee said. Thubjorin Jagland told the Associated Press, Some people say, and I understand it, isn't it premature? Too early? Well, Then I'd say then, it could be too late to respond three years from now. It is now that we have the opportunity to respond, all of us. If critics say the Nobel Peace Prize was engaging in politics, well, they're right. That's their idea. And while Americans won't listen much to five Norwegians generally, the prize is impactful two ways. One, the Nobel has something of a name around the world. Anything that helps to build a president's prestige in the eyes of the world, will have an impact on domestic politics. It doesn't matter if we, some Americans don't like France or don't like Norway or Europe's criticism of us. Anything that enhances a president's reputation in the world, really anything that builds a president's prestige at all as an individual, will help him in the office. American domestic politics, even before the American presidency, comes down to the person in the White House. President Reagan got shot. That had nothing to do with politics at all, but it certainly helped him with his tax policy getting through Congress. George W. Bush's emotional words to firefighters at Ground Zero, not much to do with policy, 
but built prestige. A world opinion of the president's important. One might argue that Woodrow Wilson's a counterexample because he was famous in the world, but then came back home and his League of Nations was defeated, right? We know that history. But actually, uh, his lack of success was in dealing with Congress and some obstinate members of the Republican Party and a failure to uh, compromise at all. Crowds liked the League of Nations. It was generally popular with people. And when Wilson went on a tour before his uh, health uh, suffered, he got a very, very good response. Eisenhower talked in his memoir about how after the defeat of Sputnik and, you know, the, the Russians had launched a satellite, that it was just good timing. It happened to be when Queen Elizabeth visited the White House, and that was just uh, helpful to build the morale a bit. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If nothing else, if it doesn't mean that much, get a good news day. There's another observation to be had here about the power of the American presidency. A change of a president alone could be enough to trigger such a reaction in the Nobel Prize Committee. Maybe the president isn't the leader of the free world anymore. There are many leaders of what might be called the free world, but the American presidency still matters. And a change in president in the eyes of the rest of the world is very meaningful in and of itself. And then a more simple observation, if we look at the period of 2008 to 2009, there wasn't, that I can think of, a significant event that one would um, think of to award a person, to award an achievement to. And so might as well uh, use the prize for perhaps to enhance, to a large degree, to help force the president's hand in the matter. You know, giving someone an award like this maybe makes them think twice about going the opposite direction. If President Obama was thinking that way, doesn't want to disappoint the expectations that have been set now. America cleaned up at the Nobel Awards, winning the Peace, the Science Prize, and Economics. And the winner of the Economic Prize is of note as well. Eleanor Ostrom, a professor at the University of Berkeley, studied how a group of individuals who are in an interdependent situation can organize and govern themselves to obtain continuing joint benefits when all face temptations to free-ride, shirk, or otherwise act opportunistically. The heart of this study is an in-depth analysis of several long-standing and viable common property regimes, including Japanese forests, 
irrigation systems in Spain and the Philippines, Swiss grazing pastures. You know, what communal property can we think of better than that, where there's a an area that a group of ranchers are, need to share? Everyone can use it, but there's the potential for one to use it more and abuse it, not take care of it, etc., at the expense of the others. Although Ostrom insists that each of these situations must be evaluated on its own terms, she uh, sets out a list of design principles common to each of the cases. Here are some of them. Clearly defined boundaries, who are people among the resource users, or people who are accountable to those resource users. All right, so if this is a field we're talking about, a graze, a, an area of grass, it's the ranchers, the ones who would actually use that field, who are either going to be involved in the monitoring or they'll hire people to monitor who are accountable to them. That's an important distinction as opposed to a third party. Graduated sanctions, mechanisms dominated by the users themselves to resolve conflicts and to alter the rules if necessary. The challenge, she observes, is to foster contingent self-commitment among the members. I will commit myself to follow the set of rules we have devised in all instances except dire emergencies if the rest of those affected make a similar commitment and act accordingly. This is being touted perhaps as a way to deal with climate change. The key distinction of Ostrom's theory is that the choice we've always faced before in our politics and something heating up today we're talking about this socialism or capitalism, etc., is we either have a market system where the market decides everything's privatized, or we have a forced government system enforcing property rights, telling ranchers that you can have your cattle there, that there's a third way. And that's that the resource users develop systems themselves. And she stresses that these work a lot better than what we've been told in the past. That all of the theories of social interaction and politics assume that people act poorly. And they actually can, at least in the example she's observed in her research, they actually act much better and the results are much better than we think. It is true when there are many independently acting individuals involved um, and there's little mutual trust, no capacity to communicate or enter into binding agreements, when they do not arrange for monitoring and enforcing mechanisms to avoid overinvestment and overuse, there will be, there's only two ways to handle that. You either clamp down with government, some third party policing, or you make it a market system and you pay for it. You want to use that land, you've got to pay. Another comment about the Nobel Prize, and it applies both to President Obama and to Ostrom's situation, this is not only a prize for the living, it's a prize with money. I believe Ms. Ostrom's receiving over a million dollars. Usually the recipient of that will do something with the money. So this is a, uh, a prize with teeth, and it's intended that the resources would be used. They want it to, to be the gift that keeps on giving. A couple of observations about Ostrom's models. One is that our own constitution, when we think about it, is similar to Ostrom's models, right? We have a group of people 
when the country started, it was states with competing interests. And within those states, there were business people and farmers and different ideas about what we wanted. They agreed, for the most part, with some exceptions, to a constitution. And the constitution has many of the things that Ostrom is talking about. It is a government, but it has many of the aspects that she's talking about. The members of the constitution are resource users themselves. They were members of the various states that uh, would time to time be elected president of the federal government or a member of Congress, etc. They have rules to deal with disputes and disagreements, and they have rules to alter the rules. You can alter the Constitution with an amendment. The Constitution has teeth. There are mechanisms for enforcement of the rules. Second observation is that Ostrom's model, although it's being touted as an example for uh, global warming right now, perhaps could be used for health care possible, and this has been talked about in terms of group cooperatives, and you have, you do have some of them uh, existing in the country now, resource users, the beneficiaries of the health care plan, all of us, could form our own groups and insure each other and set up mechanisms so that the system's not abused. It's a very general thought, and, you know, someone would have to develop it more. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Under the 2010 midterms, it's never too early to think about 2010, though, is it? <laughs> With a couple of interesting developments going on, Harry Reid, the majority leader, also a senator from Nevada, is having a little trouble in his home state. With Arlen Specter, who had switched to the Democratic Party, and it seemed that that would be a very safe Democratic seat then. He's facing a primary with a Democratic congressman and having a little bit of trouble may still be a safe Democratic seat, but it's, there might be some hurt feelings there after that's all done. A new Gallup poll suggests that Democrats have lost the big edge they had looking at next November's midterm elections. Voters are almost evenly split. Still, 46% of registered voters say they'll vote Democrat, but 44% say they'll vote Republican. When asked which party's candidate they would support for Congress if the election were held today. In July, Democrats had a lead of six percentage points. Now that's down to two. And Democrats went below 50%. 
independents now favor Republicans over Democrats, 45 to 36%. Frequently, what Democrats will bring up at this point is that after the 2006 and 2008 elections, when there was such heavy recruitment of Democratic voters, the, the independent group has become more Republican just because more Democrats have registered that way. Nancy Pelosi, Democratic Speaker of the House, is actually saying this will be the toughest midterm elections Democrats have ever faced. Now, I think she wants to get the troops excited and, of course, raise some money. But she's correct. And history would indicate. Midterm losses in the first term are historically indicated. Bill Clinton and the Democrats lost 52 House seats in 1994. President Reagan's party lost 20 seats in 1982. Dwight Eisenhower lost the House in his first term, and Sam Rayburn became Speaker. Not a big problem for Ike. He could deal with Democrats, and he was no partisan anyway. But there are two exceptions. FDR in 1934, and George W. Bush in 2002. Both of those presidents, their parties actually gained seats in their first term. And John F. Kennedy in 1962 had it easy, only lost one seat, and that was uh, treated in the news media like a victory, basically, because it was expected to be much worse. Maybe in these examples, 34, 2002, 62, there's a clue. The first-term president's midterm losses is not a big, ugly, unbeatable, unmovable trend that is on everything, controlling all events, and there's you know, strings from on high, there's nothing you can do. It is based on events like anything else. A president can mitigate it. Kennedy's performance in the Cuban Missile Crisis facing this, uh, down the Soviets was perceived as a foreign policy victory, and it helped Democrats in those elections, no doubt whatsoever. In 2002, uh, we were coming off 9-11. There was a potential buildup for the war in Iraq. We had had the war in Afghanistan. The Patriot Act was being touted and passed, and it was um, a positive situation for, for Bush, even though he was in his first term, and normally voters will sort of resist. In 1934, FDR, you know, there's a couple of theories about that one. One is that uh, FDR's had some legislative achievements. Voters were rewarding that. The other is that voters weren't done punishing the Republicans and Herbert Hoover for the Great Depression. And so they gave FDR more of a majority. What's significant about that uh, is that this is also a time when there's an economic recession and one that started with the previous president, but is now Obama's. It does give you an example that, at least in that case, the president won't necessarily be punished, at least in the midterms, for the bad economy if it's seen that you know, it, it, it came before he was in office. But those are just a few examples. In most cases, president lose seats. And looking at it historically, it's hard to argue that anything else will happen. There's always the question, Will passing a health care plan anger voters and anger the partisans of the opposite party so much that they'll come in the midterms and beat the Democrats? Or is it that the lack of action will sink a party? And I tend to believe the latter is true. Certainly was true in 1994. Democrats sort of sat out that election because it looked like President Clinton wasn't getting anything done. And the presidency was, 
you know, that the White House just wasn't handling things well. This was also true in 78 when Carter lost some seats in that election. Howard Dean, a former chairman of DNC and a former uh, candidate for president in 2004, prefers a public option. But, and he believes that if a public option were enacted, Americans would appreciate it. There is the example of Medicare and Social Security or government programs and highly popular. But in any case, as Dean argues, there won't be any public option in place because any plan doesn't have it starting until 2013. So Americans won't appreciate it for the midterms. If Democrats want to hold on to the majority, Dean says, you're going to have a problem. His solution? He urged Democrats to take action now on a health care reform that will have results by next summer. And here's Dean's idea, something that I've labeled mini-care. Open up government-run Medicare to people over the age of 50 so that older Americans, many of them now wary about Obama, will have already reaped the benefits of health care reform by the midterm elections. You need to have people sign up for this program by July 2010. I find Dean's idea interesting for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, one of the groups that President Obama had most trouble with in, in the election of 2008 was older voters. They are traditionally more conservative. And that's a group that he had some trouble with. Now, it's not actually as true as people think that President Obama got elected with the under 30 crowd. But he did have a problem with the older, over 55 crowd. A lot of what elected President Obama looking state by state was new voters of all ages. People who had voted for the first time in that election, 18 to 54. It's Obama's group. New voters from 18 to 54. So if you look at over 50 crowd, now many of the people listening to the podcast might be over 50 and saying, well, that's not old. Um, there is a particular problem, it appears, in the workforce that where you know, after a certain age, if people are laid off, they have trouble finding that job and getting their benefits. Therefore, I think that there's some merit to a plan like this. Of course, it would cost a lot of money, but it would also save those who are in this bracket and can't pay insurance quite a bit of money in terms of rather than COBRA or other sorts of um, stopgap methods. You give health benefits to those over 50, and maybe 50 isn't the right age, maybe it's 55 or 58 or something else. If they are laid off or if they simply decide they don't want to retire, they want to half-retire, they want to work part-time, consult at different places, the one trouble you're going to have is health insurance. You don't get that till you're 65, so now you've got to to keep working at one job. So this could have the effect of freeing up Companies might, they might not want to retain an employee full-time, but they might keep them a few days. And since they get benefits from the government, that's okay. So it could free up that. It might free up jobs for younger workers as well. Companies will be more willing to hire young work, young workers lower salary. One of the things we talked about with the health care program in the past is compared to other government programs with being enacted is there's usually some group that you're advocating for and Obama's health care plan seems to be missing that. There isn't that core group. Who is it that we're looking out for? Children are covered. Seniors are covered already. The disabled are covered. 
So who is it? Even the poor, extreme poor are covered under Medicaid. It's not the best always system, but they're covered. So who are we? Who's left? And Dean might be, might have something here in that the over over 55 laid off worker, unemployed, might be a group that also is deserving of sympathy and there might not be an easy solution in the private sector for them. I want to thank you for listening. Websites My History can beat up your politics.com. A plug for the archive. If you um, want to learn about uh, some interesting topics, the Secret Service, there's a mayoral election in New York City. So if you want to learn about the past New York city mayors um, and some of those who were talked about for as potential presidential candidates, why no, no mayor of New York's ever been elected president. We talk about that. Talk about guns in the Second Amendment. There was a Supreme Court case last year. And uh, talk about that. That's the archive at MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com. And thank you for listening. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.